MIT was interesting and, and, I, and I loved it. And I, and I was able to, to move the ball forward in lots of different areas. And I worked with some of the best minds in the world there, which, which was great. But it left me with this feeling of, wow, uh, research is a pressure cooker and I really don't want to have anything to do with it, right? Stability, the podcast, hosted by Hassan Ashraf. Okay, so my name is Philip Ferguson. I'm an associate professor of mechanical engineering at the University of Manitoba. Uh, I am also the chairholder of the NSERC Magellan Aerospace Industrial Research Chair in Satellite Engineering. Uh, so I do small satellite research. Uh, most of my research is on guidance, navigation, and control and trying to invigorate the space industry with new technologies that have been impacting other industries except for the space industry, like additive manufacturing and adaptive control and machine learning. And my thesis or my hypothesis is that by doing so, we'll have a more accessible space industry in Canada and around the world. Okay, uh, let's start right at the beginning. How did you get interested in actually engineering just to begin with? Yeah, so great question. So I went through high school thinking that I wanted to be a physicist. Right. And I thought physics was cool uh, until I met my grade 12 physics teacher. And that, that sounds kind of funny that I got turned off physics, but it wasn't that way at all. My grade 12 physics teacher was an engineer. And he came to me and he, he died shortly after I graduated high school. But I'll never forget, he said, you know, Phil, you seem like somebody that really likes physics. And I said, I do. I want to be a physicist. And he said, well, what you really like is engineering. You like solving problems. And uh, you need to be an engineer. Don't let anybody tell you differently. And I said, but I want to be an astronaut. I have to be a physicist to be an astronaut. He goes, ah, no, lots of astronauts are uh, engineers. You should be an engineer. And so I never looked back. So what fascinated you about being an astronaut, right? Like you said it, like, what was it that fascinated about astronaut? Because I know so many kids like myself as a growing up on Chris Hadfield, we were uh, passionate about becoming astronauts. What was it? What drove you to be? Yeah. So I, <laughs> you know, um, it, it, it's a funny answer, but I always wanted to fly. Like I, I loved looking at birds when I was a kid and, um, one of the things that my dad and I used to do, and my brother and sister too, we'd lie on the floor of our living room. I grew up in London, Ontario, and we'd look at the ceiling, and we'd wonder what life would be like if we could walk on the ceiling and walking around, and, oh, there'd be a funny slide here by the stairs, and we'd laugh and laugh and laugh. And I always, I always thought it was, it was just kind of this fun thing until I remember being in kindergarten one day and looking through the library and seeing this book about astronauts and they're floating, they're floating in space and they're flying and they're doing those things that I used to laugh about with my brother and sister and my dad. And I thought, oh, that's amazing. And then the more I got thinking about space and exploration and me just wanting to be a part of that, it just sort of snowballed and I ended up uh, in this career. So that's, that's what uh, was fascinating about was just that idea of flying. You could have been a pilot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, like it started <laughs> as that. I mean, it started yeah. with me just kind of being like, wow, I want to, I want to be able to float somewhere. I want to be yeah. able to fly around. I want to be able to do sort of thing. And then the more I got thinking about it, the more I was just, I was inspired by the vast nothingness of space and the right. need to explore. And, you know, that kind of fits in with my sort of outdoor lifestyle too. I like uh, exploring new things, trying new areas, being somewhere where others haven't been before. That just really, it really appeals to me. 
So was was the being an astronaut and the idea of space the big push behind aerospace for you? It was a huge push. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, I I structured my entire career around wanting to be an astronaut, right? I, you, I thought about the courses that I took in high school and the programs I took in undergrad and the programs that I did in graduate school. I did all of that, you know, and um, I mean, I was sort of in line and then I'm colorblind. Right. So oh. I, I couldn't end up. So I did apply. I mean, I applied. I got relatively far in the process and eventually I was medically disqualified. Oh, so you fine. went through the astronaut program. Oh, well, I went through the, the application yeah, and I got several steps in. I told the medical you know, I mean, They do the medical screening relatively early on. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I ended up, I got through the aptitude stuff and then they're like, got colorblind, sorry. Colorblindness is the reason that you weren't able to. Oh, that is a yep. bummer. I know, but you know what? It's, I mean, it's, it's a blessing in some ways, right? Like, I mean, you know, obviously if somebody were to come to me today and say, Hey, we've got a rocket ready for you to go. Do you want to go? I'd be, yeah, sign me up. Yeah. You know, I'd go, I'd go in a heartbeat, but I mean, I like where I've ended up. I've spent some time in the aerospace industry and now I'm in my dream job now, which is uh, being a professor. I, I, I yeah. love it. What about, okay, as growing up, what kind of astronaut did you look up to? Everyone looked up to someone. Yeah, oh, yeah, for sure. So my, uh, so when I, was, when I was a kid and getting in, interested in the space program, Canadian astronauts had never flown. Yeah. And uh, so I, I really liked Robert Crippen. So Robert Crippen was the first ever space shuttle pilot. He wasn't the commander. The commander yeah. was John Young, you know, just this legendary astronaut that flew in, uh, in Gemini, and uh, Apollo, and then on the space shuttle. But for the first ever space shuttle mission, Robert Crippen was the second in command. And uh, he was just this steely-eyed test pilot guy. I mean, he was fantastic. I love yeah. that guy. And he ended up flying several other space missions before he retired. Uh, he's still alive, actually. Um, John Young died a little while ago. Yeah. But yeah, Robert Crippen was one of my favorite. I used to watch him. And then, of course, once Canada recruited astronauts. I, yeah. like everybody else, kind of got behind them and supported them with what they did. I met Roberta Bondar early on, shortly after her space flight, and uh, so I had a nice connection with her and did some work with Chris Hadfield yeah. at MDA. And so I've, I've had connections with many of the Canadian astronauts yeah. too, but when I was a young, when I was a young kid, it was Robert Crippen I really looked up to. That, that's crazy. Yeah, for me, it was Chris Hadfield, of course, because yeah. for our generation, he's the guy who was leading the space in, uh, aerospace in Canada. It's crazy. Just, it just being able to be in his presence was a big deal to anyone. They were like, hey, if you meet Chris Hadfield, you've made it in the space industry. That's it. So, hey, if Chris Hadfield's listening to this by any chance, I want to meet you. Where are you at? <laughs> I contacted CSA. They say you're busy. Uh, so <laughs> what was your experience like in university? Where did you go and what was your degree like? Okay. So I've got uh, your, your bachelor's degree. That's your bachelor's, bachelor's degree. Okay. You yeah. want to talk about bachelor's. All right. Yeah. So for bachelor's, I went to the university of Toronto. Um, I, I wanted to find an aerospace program and, you know, back then, and actually it's still pretty much the case today, there aren't very many programs in Canada that are, where you start in aerospace engineering. Usually aerospace is an option of some other um, kind of engineering. You know, at U of M, it's an option in mechanical. Um, and at University of Toronto, it's also an option. It's an option in engineering science. And so it's a, it's a four-year degree program. Your first two years are sort of general engineering science uh, with a stronger emphasis on sort of the theory. And then you'd specialize. Now, these days, there are a lot more specializations than were available back when I did it. But I took the aerospace specialization in my 34th year. 
and it was fantastic. We were taught by the top professors in the University of Toronto Institute for Aerospace Studies. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that program ends up feeding a lot of uh, really great grad schools around the world too. So yeah, it was a great program. I loved it. I, I really kind of started to dig into the aspects of guidance, navigation, and control that I ended up doing a lot of research on afterwards. So did you join any teams, like an UMSAT team or a formula team or something back in your uh, days yeah. as a young Pedouin in university? <laughs> um, you know, no. Um, I, I, I mean, I was on the... For, I, I did play with Banad. Uh, that's yeah. the University of Toronto uh, Lady Godiva Memorial Band. So I, I did. I did play trumpet. I think with them or trombone or something, uh, briefly. Yeah. But you know the 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 joke here. And if there's anybody listening from University of Toronto, you would know. I'd say you'd say, well, he was an ensi, right? And so ensis don't do anything uh, <laughs> other than schoolwork. The engineering science program is absolutely killer. I mean, yeah. it, it owns you entirely, right? Um, but that being said, um, University of Toronto was not nearly as active in student teams as U of M is, right? I mean, there it's not that there weren't student teams, it's just there weren't very many, right? So nobody was making satellites, for instance. Right. There was no rocket team. Um, there was a race car team, and I remember there was a solar car team. But there was no airplane team. There was nothing like that. I think uh, uh, I only remember two. Oh, and there was a concrete toboggan or a concrete canoe or something like that. Um, but but th that that was it. I mean, they were they were really few. Um, there weren't very many students that participated, and it wasn't nearly the kind of environment that we have today. And you know, for all I know, maybe U of T has changed, and maybe yeah. their environment does have a lot more teams right now. I, I I think they probably have at least a few more. But no, I I wasn't really on any teams. Um, yeah, when you're an aerospace engineering student, you're kind of you're stuck with your books. That, yeah. Or, sorry. Well, and then any end size student, it uh, it completely owns you. But uh, but what you get at the end is a pretty pretty impressive degree. So during your time uh, as an as a bachelor student going through the program, did you end up doing any co-op jobs in the summer? And if so, were there any aerospace related jobs that you were able to pick up? Yeah, I, I did. I did. So uh, the University of Toronto has a co-op program known as the Professional Experience Year. Uh, so it's a 16-month work term, and most people take Whoa. it between their third and fourth years. Yeah, so it's um, it's a pretty big commitment. Uh, and so from May of 1998 until September of 1999, I worked at Spar Aerospace, uh, which became MDA while I was there. Yeah. Uh, Spar Aerospace, I worked on the space station robotics. I, I did some of the control design and testing for the uh, special purpose dexterous manipulator, which is now Dexter, the, the two-armed yeah. robot on the space station. Um, yeah, we, we did uh, ground testing of that. We did some uh, environmental testing at the David Florida Labs. And I even did some astronaut training to teach the astronauts how to use the robots. Actually, wow. I, taught, I taught Chris Hadfield how to use the... Wow. So that was yeah. during all your time as a third or fourth year engineering I was, student. I was, a, I was a third year engineering student. And this was my co-op job. And I, wow. Uh, yeah, I, I had, I lucked out and I ended up with a phenomenal um, co-op. And actually at the same time, Spar was also working on um, animatronic dinosaurs for the um so the, like full-size triceratops for the movie 
Yeah, uh, Jurassic Park? Universal Studios theme park in Florida. Oh. And, and so some of the people that I worked with, I didn't work on it directly, but some of my colleagues spent their whole day making a Triceratops grunt and pee on the ground and sneeze and all that. That is one stuff. wild co-op job. It was pretty amazing. It was amazing. I spent two months living in Ottawa uh, while I was there uh, doing the environmental testing, the thermal vacuum chamber and the vibration testing. And, you know, around us were satellites that were in various stages of, of integration. Uh, so it was two months. But then the rest of it I spent in Brampton doing uh, work on a test bed that had a full-size version of the robot arm that we were able to move around. Right. And then eventually trained the astronauts on how to use it. So we had that, three astronauts fly in. And that is wild. It was fun. That's that's a wild co-op job. Um, so, so my next question was, what kind of experiences did you learn towards that helped you achieve the goals that you have done today? Like, that must have been just like eye-opening job experience. Yeah, and and, and I got I got to tell you, um, <laughs> I'll harken back to a teacher that I had in high school. My music teacher used to say. Uh, What's the biggest problem in the world? And we'd all sit there and be like, communication. You know, we would roll our eyes. And you know, that's what he wanted us to say, right? Yeah. And I don't think I appreciated at the time how much of a, a challenge that can be, right? And so I think the biggest thing that I learned when I was at SPAR, I mean, I learned a lot of technical things as well. We learned, I learned robotics and robot dynamics and right. uh, really how the space industry works. But I think more than anything else, I learned how to communicate with the team. I learned how to communicate with the space agencies, um, and 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 I and I kind of I guess I learned how to sort of communicate with myself too because I found myself doing research in a lab scenario where I learned firsthand the importance of keeping good notes, um, right. writing up and documenting the work that I was doing, um, you know, and then with with the other engineers, I I learned team dynamics, you know, that sometimes uh, what's really 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 important to you is is not at all important to other people and and things clash right so i was doing control testing and i really wanted to test the sports moment sensor but it was going to throw somebody else's schedule out the window so you know you end up locking horns with people right and and you have to find some way to get to get through it and then you, you end up locking horns with nasa and you lock horns with canadian space agency or right. or sometimes and actually we did we locked horns with the astronauts right being like Ooh, this is this is how it works yeah. and the astronauts hated it and they stormed out one day right oh what are we gonna do <laughs> oh, they don't want to use the robots we yeah teach them differently and so i i went from like zero to mach seven in learning how to communicate with different stakeholders yeah. at an engineering level and that's not something you really learn in school no. right well so on the terms of like the co-op right what kind of what kind of skills did you have? Like you, you said, you were just a student with no like actual work, like work, like engineering experience. How did you like? What kind of things did you do, like put on your resume or something that actually helped you towards that, or was it just a luck of the draw? Yeah, well, um, so I think you know, speaking as somebody that has hired co-op students myself. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I worked at Magellan, I hired students as well. Most of the time, when somebody hires a student, um, you're not really expecting that student to show up and have all the skills necessary to design the next greatest space robot or something. Right. You, you hire based on enthusiasm and willingness to learn and willingness to be a sponge, yeah. right? And, and so 
Um, you know, it's it's not like, oh, well, I was trained in the details of Nyquist stability <laughs> criterion, and I used that to analyze. No, I didn't do any of that, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I had taken whatever classes I had up to the end of my third year, which had some dynamics and some right. control systems or whatever. And I, and I used those theories in my work. Um, but really, I, like, I, I think if I look back at it, and the gentleman that hired me, his name is Craig Thornton. He's now the CEO at a company called Hatch. But he was astounding, and yeah. anyone that's ever worked with Craig will know that. And uh, and I remember him walking me through. He gave me a tour of the clean room. He showed me the triceratops, and we walked through. And I just I asked as many questions as I could, and I sort of treated that interview as my one and only time ever to be in a clean room and see actual hard space hardware. And you know, of course, it wasn't my one and only time. I got hired yeah. and I worked there for many years, but I well, not many, but a few years. And, uh, and, and I think it was really that curiosity, that willingness to learn, and that willingness to, be, to become integrated as a part of the team that led me to, to get the job. And then when I was in the job, to be given more and more responsibilities, just because I, 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 put, a, I put in a concerted effort to, to learn from the people around me. One of the things that I did, actually, that maybe wasn't too popular with my fellow students, you know, as a, as a co-op student there, many of the students would have lunch together. Right, right. You think this table in the cafeteria of all the students, right? And I, I didn't want to eat with the students, right? Because I, right. I saw the students all the time, right? I wasn't going to learn anything, and so I, I found myself. I would have lunch with different people every day, and so sometimes I have lunch with the old crotchety engineers from England that yeah. designed the Canada for the space shuttle, right? And so the stories I would get from them would just be astounding, right? It's, and so, and this is what I, I would just try to learn all that. And my student friends would be like, hey, how come you not having lunch with us? And I, yeah. I have lunch with you guys all the time, right? I can, you know, I take them for granted, I guess. But but anyway, so I use the time just to learn. And, and, and I think that's what made it successful. I understand that completely. This is kind of the reason why I started this podcast. I get the opportunity to talk to really level, high-level CEOs. Like I've had the opportunity to talk to four or five CEOs. And right. it's just been an amazing experience to learn from them. Like a lot of the things that they've been following as a kid to up to now, it's like, wow, I followed those steps. I did the same things you did as a kid. But what changed? What was that pinnacle little detail that in your life twisted it so that your life became more successful than an average person? Or your life changed in such a dramatic turn that now you're running a multi-billion dollar company? Like, I want to know, like, what is that little detail? And should I be looking out for these stuff? Because I'm hitting 20 in a few months and I'm going to be an old dude. And I want to be able to like take my time and twenties is the grind, right? So I want to be able to not miss something. Yeah. I mean, I, again, like, I, I think, I think it all comes back to communication. How can you communicate with people? How do you listen to people? Right. Um, what, what, what can you learn from people? Right. You know, my, my mentor um, when I was at SPAR or MBA um, and then, and then actually at Dynacon as well, when I worked later after getting my degree, my mentor was a fellow by the name of Simon Brokaw. And he now works at um, the Space Flight Labs in Toronto. And Simon was the best listener I've ever met. I mean, to, to the point where, you know, you, you're talking to Simon and he's just, he's looking so intently at you. And he's just listening. And, and you're, sometimes you, you just, you expect Simon, Simon, are you, are you got, you know, like, did you, did you, did you get it? And he's like, oh yeah. But he's just, he listens so much. Uh, and, and and I, I learned a lot from Simon, both technically and everything else. But I think one of the biggest things I learned from Simon was the ability to just sit back and listen and, and listen to what people have to say, take them in, um, really think about what they're saying. And 
as opposed to using the time that somebody else is talking to think about what you're going to say next. <laughs> I mean, Simon, yeah, he just, uh, in addition to just being an absolute genius with um, engineering control and uh, engineering systems and space systems in, in general, he's a, he's a genius at communication. Um, and I, I, I owe a lot to him because of that. So at what point in your career were you like, I want to do research? Like, this is what, this is what I'm, I enjoy. Yeah, wow. So that, that, that's a funny question and one that was really uh, organic in its, in its evolution. So right. I, I, um, I, of course, did research in grad school um, and, I, and I really liked it. But, the, but where I went to grad school was, I mean, it was a pressure cooker. Right? MIT. And, you were, yeah. you're making it sound humble. Like well, you, you okay, went to like, one of the best uh, research grad schools in the world. Well, sure. I mean, it's, it's a great school. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But the, the 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 problem with MIT is that it it turns what I think many people think would be a enjoyable career in right. research and thinking about real problems into. Yeah, I mean, you have to be the right person for it. Right. For, for me, for me, my time at MIT was interesting, and and I and I loved it, and I and I was able to to move the ball forward in lots of different areas, and I worked with some of the best minds in the world there, which which was great. But it left me with this feeling of wow, uh, research is a pressure cooker, and I really don't want to have anything to do with it, right? Yeah. Because because everybody at MIT, I mean, they're where they are because they never, never stop, right? I mean, it's a it's a 100% go, 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 go. We've got to be better than everybody else. We've got to get more funding than everybody else. We've got to yeah. work hard to get tenure. We've got to work hard to get promotion. We've got to do all these things. And, and, and you're constantly having to justify your existence. And so I, I left MIT with my head sort of spinning and being, you know, I, I had options to become a professor in different places. Um, I interviewed at U of T, I was not successful. Uh, a really good friend of mine, um, Tim Barfoot, ended yeah. up with that position. He's doing great at U of T right now. Um, and I had some other offers from some U.S. schools, and I ended up declining them and saying, you know what? No, I want to go in the industry where where the industry has ideas of what they want to yeah. do and move forward. And so, you know, I, I worked at uh, Dynacon, which became Microsoft Satellite Systems, or, or Microsoft Systems Canada Incorporated, Incorporated um, MSCI, and then I ended up at Magellan. And, you know, but what I found when I worked at these places, and then eventually Precision Hawk in the drone industry, uh, was that I got drawn to the projects where we were trying to develop new things. And I, I kind of, I got, I got bored with the things where we were just like, ah, well, you know, we'll just build the same thing that we built 50 times before. Yeah. I really wanted to drive that forward. And so it eventually got to the point where I thought, you know, I'm, I, I don't like the fact that I'm constantly being driven to the bottom line revenue for Q4. It's like, no, we got to hit this revenue number. That means throw all this new stuff out the window and focus on making money this quarter because we got investors and we got to keep them happy. Yeah. And, and that's what started to kind of get to me. I thought, you know what? I, I, I miss the part of grad school where I could sit back and put a blue sky hat on and say, what if we just did this thing? What would it look like? If we tried? Yeah. And um, yeah, so that's what got me back into it, and that's what led me back to to, to Manitoba here, where, where I feel like I belong. So let's talk about your grad school experience. You know, MIT, uh, Massachusetts Institution of Technology, one of the best grad schools in the world for their because they get the most funding, and because the greatest minds in the world attend those that institution. What was it? What was the feeling like when you got accepted? 
Um, I, g- good, uh, terrifying, uh, yeah. very, very, very terrifying. Um, it's, uh, I mean, you're, you're excited. You know, it's funny. I, I just, just last week I got an email. I, I sent a congratulations email to, uh, a, a professor of my, a friend of mine, who's a professor at the University of Winnipeg that just got a grant from the Canadian Space Agency. I said, congratulations. And he said, yeah, thanks. But you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword. It's like, great, we got it, but oh crap, now I actually have to do yeah, this. Yeah, true, true, right? true. And so, so I, I think, I think that's sort of how I felt. Um, one of the things that is common in, in professors and researchers is this imposter syndrome. And the imposter syndrome starts when you're in grad school and it just gets worse yeah, more yeah. and more through your career, right? And so I went to MIT thinking that I somehow uh, duped them, right? I somehow- Like you don't belong. Them. Yeah, I don't belong. I, I yeah. didn't belong there at all. I look around, I, all these people are really smart around me. I'm not nearly like that. Yeah. Uh, but I somehow pulled them all over their eyes and I- yeah, you know, I, mean, I didn't give them a fake transcript, but I somehow thought that I had convinced them that I was somebody that I wasn't. Yeah. Um, and even after you get your PhD, you're like, well, maybe they just gave it to me because they felt sorry for they me. They felt bad. You know, let's just get this guy out of here. If we give yeah. him a PhD, we'll leave, right? Uh, you know, and so, you know, and then I worked in industry and then kind of feel like you belong for a while, yeah. right? Oh, okay, I'm building satellites and they're launching. <laughs> it works, right? All of a sudden, you end up back in the professor chair again and all the imposter just lands right back on top. Yeah, like, well, I don't belong here. I don't have the right background for it. And so, so I guess to answer your question, how did I feel? I, I was excited for about four nanoseconds. And then I got terrified. I'm like, well, now they're going to expect me to change the world. And yeah. you know what? And so, I mean, I obviously wasn't scared the whole time. I was able to find a, a research group that I felt really comfortable in and, and, and grow as a researcher. But yeah, it was, it was, a, it was an experience for sure. So how was your experience getting your PhD? Like, I know you got your master's and PhD from MIT, yep. but after getting your master's, you went on to get your PhD. What was that, you know, becoming the doctor ed, like you're now the highest classification of whatever you possibly can achieve in an education system. How was that feeling? Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the, the PhD is somewhat anticlimactic when you get to the end of it, because you spend roughly four years working on this problem and you just get, so buried in the problem, right? Like, I mean, it gets to the point where you're not thinking about anything else, yeah. right? It's just every time you're awake, you're thinking about your problem. Um, you know, I would, I would write MATLAB code on airplanes coming, flying back and forth to conferences or something. And, and, and I'd have these little moments where I'd yeah. see somebody walk down the aisle and the way their leg would move and I'd go, oh, maybe that's what I should do, right? And so yeah. it never, never, it never, ever leaves your mind. And so by the time you get to the end and, and you write your dissertation and, and you defend your thesis and they come out and they shake your hand and say, yeah. congratulations, Dr. Ferguson, you, you passed. You're kind of like, oh, what just happened, right? Like you know, because you, you, you haven't been able to look at the big picture for so long. And you've just been so into this. Yeah. And so, but, but you know, I, it's a necessary part of getting a PhD, I think. Yeah, uh, you, you need to have that immersion where all that you're thinking about is that one thing. Um, and so in my PhD, that's what I remember most is I remember feeling lost. Yeah. I remember thinking, I don't really, really know what to do next. And, and the good PhD advisors will not answer that question for you, right? They'll, they'll kind of push you out and say, you know, this is for you to decide, right? Yeah. For a master's degree, yeah, we can kind of help you out. We'll help you tell you what the steps are and yeah. these things and you get a degree. But for a PhD, you're expected to drive that, that boat, right? And, uh, and, and in my case, my, my advisor was Dave Newman. Uh, she went on to become the deputy administrator of NASA. And now, now she's back at, um, 
MIT as a professor yeah. there. She was exactly that. I mean, she was there to sign the checks and make sure I had money that I needed to do, but she was very hands-on and said, you know, this is your program. You, you figure out what you want to do. Uh, and she and my committee were there to help direct me along the way. But I think you spend a lot of the PhD program wondering what you're doing. Right? Right. You're wrong all the time. Right. You're almost never correct in your yeah. assumptions and everything. And so that's what I remember most out of my PhD, which is just trying to find my way, trying to find out well, what's the important things to study. Um, and yeah, your head is spinning for quite a bit of it, but then you, you have these rare moments of clarity every now and then to sort of keep you moving. And right. uh, yeah, that's what I remember. <laughs> Man, time is such an ambiguous like concept. It's just like, it goes by and you don't realize how fast, it just blew by you That's and, then true. You're, and you're already sitting at such a different uh, part of your life. You're like, Oh, what happened to the other part? I don't, I was just too focused on it. I don't remember any much more about it. So after your PhD, uh, you, you got an opportunity to work on the Dexter, uh, Dexter, right? So the special purpose dexterous manipulator program. Well, it was actually before my PhD. Oh, yeah. wow. So, okay. Yeah, no, I, I did that. I did that during my co-op. Oh, um, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that that was before my PhD. Yep. Yeah. Yes, I worked on that. So what was after your PhD? What kind of jobs were you able to pick up, and what kind of jobs did you do after your PhD? Yeah. So after my PhD, I worked as an attitude control systems specialist. Uh, I didn't have a professional engineering designation yet, so I couldn't call myself an engineer. But I, I did. Um, I did work for small satellites. Uh, their pointing, uh, pointing control. Yeah. I my the first satellite I worked on was already in orbit when I got in the company. It's called MOS, the micro. Uh, micro oscillations of stars, um, uh, micro variability in oscillations of stars, that's what I should say. Uh, so that satellite was already in orbit. Some people called it the Humble Space Telescope. It was Canada's first telescope. Um, is that what's humble? Most is humble? Most is the Humble Space Telescope. Oh, yeah. wow. Its it, it, other name was the Humble Space Telescope. Yeah, that's how I know it as. Yeah, so oh, that was wow. called Most. And so when I started at uh, Dynacon, the company was called yeah. Dynacon at the time, uh, Most was already in orbit. And we had just proposed the NeoSat spacecraft. And NeoSat was based largely on most. Yeah. And uh, so what we started with is I put together the control systems for NeoSat, and then we tested it on most. Right. So I had the opportunity to, um, I had an in-space test bit, effectively. That if I came up with new algorithms that I wanted to fly on NeoSat, I uploaded them to the satellite, up to most. Yeah. And we eventually turned most into NeoSat. Uh, with its control algorithms. And that's how we validated that the control algorithms would work. Right. Um, and then we developed the NeoSat control algorithms. And then years later, it launched and then had some hardware problems that had to be fixed. But um, yeah, so that, that was my first my first role. I worked on attitude control systems at Dynacon, and which then became Microsoft Systems Canada. I did yeah. a lot of work on reaction wheels, um, designing new reaction wheels um, and doing analysis for reaction wheels, trying to make them better. Right. Um, yeah, and then I ended up going to um, Magellan. Um, in Winnipeg and working on what projects did you work on there? Yeah, so at Magellan, I was hired for the RadarSat Constellation mission. Uh, I did uh, various work there. I started as a systems analyst there. Again, I wasn't yet a, um, a professional engineer, but uh, <laughs> so I did space systems work. Yeah, uh, and I eventually became the engineering manager there for um, electrical and computer, electrical and software engineering. Right. And I oversaw the uh, power subsystem, which included the power control unit and the batteries and the solar arrays for the three radar sat constellation mission satellites. Um, 
Yeah, and I worked on that until uh, 2014 and then became the vice president of uh, product development at Precision Hawk, which is a small drone company in Ontario. I've heard of Precision Hawk. I've flown totally different. Yeah. Drones. yeah they're, really right. nice drones. they're pretty decent drones. They are. I mean, they don't sell drones anymore, but no. at the time, we, uh, my team designed the drones and yeah. uh, built them and manufactured them. They were nothing like the DJIs or Phantoms or the Mavericks, but they're pretty good drones. Back well, the they were. I mean, they were very purpose-built, right? I mean, yeah. they were intended for agriculture and oil and gas and, you know, to collect data. We used to say they were actionable. We we collect actionable data from the yeah. drones. So, I mean, so that was that was totally different, right? It had nothing to do with space. It was a startup environment, very different, you know, sort of doing work for shareholders and uh, investors. Um, yeah, and it was during that that I started to realize I really missed uh, university research. Right? Yeah. We, we did some work with university researchers like Tim Barfoot, who I mentioned earlier. We did some great research with, with him and others at the University of Toronto. But uh, yeah, it led me to believe, you know, I really, really want to get back into that. So that's, what so that's how you got it, ended up in U of M. Yeah, exactly. So uh, a, a thing I read on the internet was like, you're trying to make University of Manitoba a small satellite innovation hub. We How's are. that going? <laughs> you know, uh, very well, actually, I'll say. So Manitoba is an aerospace hub, right? So we've got yeah. uh, the big three here in, in Winnipeg, Magellan Aerospace, Boeing, and Standard yeah. Aero. And uh, there's a lot of space work that goes on at Magellan with the RadarSat Constellation mission being the most recent. But of course, they've got a long history with Cassiope spacecraft, SciSat. They did a lot of work with sounding rocket payloads. And of course, they designed and built the uh, Black Brand sounding rocket. And so Manitoba already has a really strong footing when it comes to the space industry. And uh, but what we the need that we wanted to fill was a we wanted to build capacity. Uh, Magellan needed an area almost like a like an engineering nursery, right? A place yeah. where we can create engineers that they could then hire from and, and staff their their pro, their projects. Um, but we also wanted somewhere where we could experiment with some of the uh, newer, interesting small satellite technologies like what you see on CubeSats, right? right? So this started with my research chair wanting to innovate in this area. Uh, and then it got another big shot in the arm when we um, won the uh, Manitoba edition of the Canadian CubeSat program. So, oh, uh, yes, I saw that. Agency. Yeah. yeah, the Canadian Space Agency gave us a couple hundred thousand dollars and a free launch into space to build a yeah. small satellite. And so my team is doing that right now. So I met with them yesterday. A couple hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah, two hundred thousand dollars. We're going to make an entire satellite. Right. Yeah. And, and most of that money is going to pay grad students. You know, I think the total amount of that money, only yeah. twenty thousand dollars of it is actually being spent on hardware. Is that um, just a cube satellite? Is that like a small one? Yeah. Yeah. It's a small satellite. Is that like um, is that with UMSATs? So we're using some of the technologies that UMSATs have created yeah. over the past number of years, um, but but it, it, it's separate from UMSATs. So oh, okay, many okay. of my many of my graduate students did work with UMSATs, yeah. the, the, the student team, uh, and I'm the UMSAT. I'm one of the UMSATs uh, yeah. faculty advisors. Yeah. Still. So, but yeah, so it, it's it's not the same, but but related. Oh, okay, okay. It's a different project on its own. It's a different project, yeah. So our our satellite is not the same as the UMSAT yeah. satellite. Our satellite is is intended to support NASA's work with asteroids uh, from the Bennu. Sorry, not, not the the Osiris Rex mission. Yeah. Our, our satellite is feeding data into that mission um, by studying the space weathering effects on space rocks. So a few um, years ago, I wanted to launch my own satellite from my backyard and realized you have to actually pay to launch something into space. You can't just launch it from your backyard. It doesn't work. 
Well, yeah. I mean, you could, but you need a big backyard and a lot of... Uh, a lot of fuel. A lot of fuel. Yeah. <laughs> the, you know, so the, the, there's a great XKCD cartoon. There's so many great XKCD yeah. cartoons, but but there, there's one that talks about how why it's so hard to get into space. And it's because you don't just need to get high. Yeah. You need to go really, really fast. Fast. Right. You got to break that barrier or else this doesn't work. Yeah, exactly. So what kind of advice would you give to the next generation of aerospace engineers? So I, I think I, I would say break the mold. Um, we are now, what we're starting to see now, and we've seen this over the past maybe five to eight years or so. We've started to see a change in the space industry. You know, it used to be the case that um, you'd be scoffed at if you were going to put something in space that wasn't uh, rad hard, built like a like a brick poop house, yeah. and uh, you know. Uh, took you 12, 15, sometimes 20 years to design and build, right? Yeah. So as a result, we just, in the space industry, ended up coming to the realization at some point, somewhere along the lines, that in order to build a satellite, you have to spend hundreds of millions of dollars, and it has to take you decades, and it has to be full of old technology, and it has to be tested for years and years and years before right. you and, and that just drove us into the ground, right? And so what... My, my advice is don't just take what we did in the past as reason enough to, con to, to continue doing that thing in the future, yeah. right? And, you know, this comes back to my time at Spar Aerospace. I remember I, I, I tell the story every now and then where I say, I, I was telling you that I would have lunch with the, all the old yeah, engineers. Yeah. And I remember asking the old engineer once, how did you know to design that elbow joint the way that you did for the Canada Arm? His answer was, well, because that's what we did for Canada, uh, for Canada Arm on the space station. And I, or sorry, sorry, it was the other way around. I, I yeah. said, I said, how did you know how to design that arm the way you did for Dexter? And he said, well, that's what we did for Canada Arm 2. And I said, well, how did you know how to do it for Canada Arm 2? And he said, well, that's what we did for Canada Arm 1. I said, well, how did you know how to do it for Canada Arm yeah. 1? And he said, I don't know, they're all dead, right? All the people that did that. But yeah. we just keep doing the same thing, right? Now, SPAR and NBA do a lot of really, really great innovative stuff. But that, to me, was a sign of where the space industry was at that time. That was in the late 90s. Yeah. And the space industry was still very much old school space. It's like, no, if it works, you don't change it, right? Yeah. And we just keep doing the same thing. And as a result, we keep not moving forward with this with the space industry. So it, it takes new um, ideas. It takes courage to be able to stand up and say, you know what? Yeah. I think we can use automotive grade, uh, automotive grade electronics in yeah. space, as long as we screen them appropriately for radiation tolerance, right? So you're a big fan of SpaceX. Well, exactly. And I think SpaceX has really helped us along yeah. those lines too, right? And and I remember, you know, back when in the early 2010s, like around 2011, 2012. When they first launched it? Yeah, well, I toured the SpaceX facility. Uh, wow. And I remember we all walked around there, all of us that have been working in the space industry for yeah. so long. You can't build a satellite like that. I saw yeah. toothpicks sticking out of, a, out of or not toothpicks, um, popsicle sticks. Because yeah. You used to hold stuff together. On the Dragon spacecraft that had was getting ready to go into space for yeah. its only its second flight ever, and I, we were all laughed and said, "Ah, you'll <laughs> never get into space like that, silly old SpaceX. You know that's not how you do space. Ha ha ha! You know, we know better <laughs> than that." But of course, we didn't, yeah. right? It was just we were so indoctrinated in the old ways of doing space, and and it's only just now that we're starting to say, "Hey, you know what? 
those ideas came from a different time. We've got new technologies like adaptive control and machine learning and different ways of manufacturing. And we need to embrace that and find ways to get that into space. And so we're seeing that now. And I encourage people just to keep pushing that forward, right? Don't, don't take, well, this is what we did yesterday as a reason enough to keep doing something. Well, the old way is not the best way. If something works, doesn't mean it can't be changed to be more effective than it. Yeah, exactly. Now, now, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm I'm not that kind of person that says, well, just because it meets requirements means that you you, you should keep working, right? I'm, yeah. I'm I'm firmly in that requirement. If it meets requirements, then you're good. But yeah. but still, um, that's not to say that we should close our minds to other other industries, right? right. Um, it, we where we are now. I mean, we're starting to see now additive manufacturing in space. We're starting to see machine learning take a really prominent role in the space industry. Right. Uh, composite manufacturing, you know, we're, we're seeing lots of these different things come in. Um, but recent, uh, you know, you go back five, 10 years ago, that they were all taboo. They were like, no, 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 no. We build things out of 6061 aluminum yeah. and, and nothing else. Right. <laughs> or, or, or we use, we use, you know, ANSI C to write our code. We don't use things like Python and we write, you know, definitive for loops, we don't use machine learning, we don't use neural networks, but that's starting to change now because people's minds are opening up to different ways of doing things in space. It, it, it comes down to embracing risk and understanding, you know, maybe if if we are not spending as much on the space mission, we can afford to take a few little technical risks yeah. if we do them in, in smart ways. And that allows us to move the industry forward. And, and so, I, that's what I would encourage. So as a person who's growing up on SpaceX, uh, like in his, like in, in our twenties, like that's, that's who we're seeing make the biggest change or in the space industry, how fast is it actually evolving? Like we see Elon launching a rocket every like freaking two, three days. Like how, like I, I'm exaggerating, but like what, what kind of like how fast is the space industry actually growing to the fact that he might be launching rockets every like two months or something like that? Yeah. I mean, it's, um, but it's certainly going fast. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, and so I, I don't really know how to put a number on that. But, but it, I mean, I, I think it is, it is definitely the case that the space industry is moving much faster today than it did before. And I think that has a lot to do with the privatization of access to space. I mean, yeah. it used to be that if you wanted to get something in space, you had two options. You're launching it on a space shuttle or a Delta rocket or a Russian rocket, right? I mean, that, that's pretty much it. And they were all very government controlled. Um, you know, now we've got so many different options, right? And and not just North American. We've got options in India, options in China, yeah. um, options in Japan and Europe, and uh, hopefully someday out of Canada as well. Yeah. But um, so we've got many more options to get access to space, which has helped. Um, and then and because the access has become a lot easier, it's made it easier for smaller groups like startups now. Yeah. Like we have we have startup companies that are providing satellites for space. Wow. And you've never, like that would have been completely unheard of back 10 years ago, right? Yeah. You have a startup. How's a startup going to get enough funds to put Fun. a satellite yeah, in exactly. orbit, right? But, but now with this improved access to space, it, it, it's a possibility. Um, and so, so, so it is the case that space is moving quickly. But I will say that not all of space is moving very quickly, right? Um, the, what we've seen recently, I mean, back when I was in grad school, like in the late 90s and early 20, 2000s, when we started to see this CubeSat movement that was started by Bob Twiggs at Stanford University. Um, when, when people first started making CubeSats, they were sort of considered as toys, right? Yeah. And so the CubeSat industry started to move really fast back then, but the CubeSat industry was really just limited to schools, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, I'm going to 
make a little box that beeps and send it <laughs> space and get a picture maybe, right? Yeah. Nobody ever considered them to be sort of real. And then we started moving into the early 2000s and kind of uh, 2003 to 2005 timeframe. And it was like, hey, you know what? These small satellites can actually do real science, right? Yeah. If we embrace some of this technology. And so what we started to see was what started off as toys started to creep more and more and more into mainstream. Yeah. But there still is this divide between, nope, that's a small satellite, that's not real, and this is the big satellite. So yeah. we're still not seeing things like CubeSats or small satellites take the place of the Goliath um, the geostationary giant. satellites that are providing us our, our satellite TV and, this, and the yeah. satellite access. However, that even that is now starting to change with Starlink that SpaceX is putting oh, up. And all I just the, my friend just got their internet for Starlink. It's wild. Oh, did he? Yeah, did he? she in the ruler area of Manitoba. Like I live in Brandon, right? So yeah. they live in Rivers, and they got their Starlink, and it's so freaking cool. I'm just like, whoa! I'm like, I'm coming over to look at it. Like I have wow. to see it. It's oh, so I'm jealous cool. because because I live I live in, I'm jealous. So yeah. so she she's got she lives in a in a rural environment. Yeah, she lives in Rivers, like. So small. Yeah, right. So I live in the in rural Manitoba too, yeah. and my internet is terrible. And so I'm yeah. waiting to be called by SpaceX. To say, There's hey, went up by ten percent, like ten times, like ten times the internet. It went from five to fifty, uh, fifty megabytes per second. See, this is what I need, right? So yeah. this is why I'm in my office today and not at home, uh, <laughs> talking to you because my internet is so crappy. Starlink. So way. Starlink, yeah, but but then you know, so Starlink uh, with that, and and you know, they weren't the first, but they're the first. In, I mean, they've got thousand, almost yeah. a thousand satellites now in orbit, right? So we are starting to see this move towards small satellites to do to do big things, but it hasn't always been the case. I mean, so the the move is happening, and it's happening much quicker now than it was before. We're not quite there yet, but we're getting there. Right. So last, my final question is the intriguing question of all people in our 2020 era, is. Mars mission. What do you think about it? What is your opinion on the mission to Mars that Elon Musk has stated that we should be there within the next five years? Yeah, I, I, I love it. I, I absolutely love it. I, um, you know, for all the robots do great things for us, yeah. you know, we've been able to do a lot of robotic exploration we can do sample returns. We can do all those things. And none, none of that can replace the Mark one eyeball. Right. And, yeah. and that's what we always say. So putting boots on the ground with gloves and eyeballs of people that can actually make decisions out there. Um, I, I'm all for it. I, I'd like to think that this will happen in my lifetime. I'm yeah. starting to get worried it might not. But um, <laughs> but Elon is continuing to push for that. Yeah. Right. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm all for Mars exploration. I think that we as a species need to continue growing and I, I mean, I'm I, uh, I I I'm don't go quite so far as to say that eventually we're going to outgrow Earth and we need to be on a yeah. planet. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that will happen. I'd like to think that our species will be a little smarter with dealing with the planet that we're on in the future and maybe make it so we don't have to leave. But yeah. um, but just in the interest of exploration and uh, expanding humanity's presence. Absolutely. I'm all for it. Let's go to Mars. Do you, do you think it, so a lot of people's concern is it's a suicide mission, like sending people out, but do you think by human ethics, that's right to send out like 40 people to space who knows what will happen. They're signing their lives away or something. Okay. Well, I, I'm going to turn your question around just a little bit. I, I'm going to say if, if we were sending people to Mars, knowing that they would not be able to come back. Yeah. Uh, I'm not all, I'm not for that at all. Exactly. I, I, I think that we owe it to ourselves ethically to to preserve the lives of people. Exactly. Um, 
so so I'm I'm not a fan of the one-way trip to Mars. Yeah. Uh, but I, I am a fan of of risk, right? So so yeah. So yeah, I mean, if we put send somebody to Mars, and yeah, there's a decent chance yeah. that something bad will happen. I'm okay with that. I mean, we've been doing that since the well, since the dawn of airspace. Yeah. yeah. Putting a, sending a rock to space was a risk right at the beginning. Always a risk. Stuff has right? gone wrong, like. Right, right. So, so I think as long as we have a reasonable plan and it has been vetted by engineers and, and the right people that we think, yep, we think there's a really good possibility that this will work and that we'll be able to get it ready there safely and, and back again, then then I'm all for it. I, I don't like the idea of sending them a little one-way no trip. They, they don't come back. And, you know, when yeah. you're done, right before you run out of oxygen, you take the pill <laughs> and everything's full away. And no, I, I'm, not, I'm not happy with that. But, but I'm confident in our ability to develop systems that can keep people safe all the way out to Mars and bring them all the way back. I mean, we have a long way to go, but I'm confident that we can get there. Great. Just a final question. I'm intrigued for like a aerospace engineer. What is your favorite aerospace movie out there? Oh, <laughs> the right stuff. Hands down the right stuff. Really? Oh, I love it. None of the new stuff? Uh, you know what? I like the new stuff too. Apollo 13 was great. And yeah. Interstellar? You know. The one of the yeah, I liked Interstellar. I mean, yeah. they, they, those were good movies, but but the the right stuff. I mean, we're talking two VHS tapes, yeah. right? Like four hour movie, um, starting from you know Chuck Yeager breaking the speed of sound all yeah. the way through to the end of the Apollo program. Um, I just love it. Uh, oh, right. it's amazing! I have to check it. I've actually never watched the right stuff. It, it's a commitment. Right. Is, is it worth? <laughs> is it a nice Christmas movie to watch or something like a nice? It is. I know, hey, you're, you're you're stuck at home anyway. You can't yeah. go with two people. You might as well watch the right stuff. It's, yeah, uh, definitely it's gonna check that out. Uh, okay, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Um, do you have any last words that you want to say for the people listening? No, I just I, I'd like to thank you. I think this is a great idea to have this podcast, and I'm honored to be a part of it. So thanks for thank you so much. You're my first one in December. Happy holidays. Okay, <laughs> right, thank you so much. All right, thanks. Have a good one.